Yes, indeed. Hello and welcome to episode 7 of the Yes, Indeed podcast. My name is Brian. You want to take some of that stuff out of your mouth? Out of your mouth? <laughs> wow. My name is Brian. Yep. And I'm Ben. What? Uh, we have a podcast for you today, as other days we have also. We are going to talk in your ears about Concordia, which is a very nice board game. That's a midweight euro, which is I will describe in a minute, but I love that term. Uh, I'll talk about Glenn Hansard, who I have seen in concert now for the first time. Woo. Not of anyone, of, for me. Um, and then we'll do a lot of video games chatter, including Child of Light, Guitar Hero? Yep. I read that right. Uh, burnout and games for zoning out slash listening to music, uh, and then lovers in a dangerous space time, and boss design in souls alikes. So that sounds a bit nebulous, but here we are. Sometimes I smack my lips. Yep, you do. Sometimes I don't. Yes, you don't. Yes, indeed. It's like the dust without the hair. It's like the forest without the bear. It's like the bear without the god. It's like the game without the mod. It's like the mod without the nerd. It's like the listen without the herd. Midweight euros. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this is obviously our reader's favorite topic of how to classify board games. Um, so what's a euro game? A euro game is uh, just a blanket term for any kind of game that uh, has you really concerned with the intricacies of efficiency in that game, uh, trying to build like the best system you can to try to get the most amount of victory points each turn because at the end of the day, the whoever has the most victory points wins the game. Um, so that's, that's what we mean by Euro. Then there's this kind of scale of lightweight to heavyweight Euros. Heavyweight Euros are the Kanban Russian railroads of the world, which are way too intense for me they're like food chain magnet which are like three hours long and if you make a mistake in the first 20 seconds then you're gonna have three hours sitting at the thing being like i guess my thing was slightly less efficient than the people who are better than me at this game um and then there's the other end of the spectrum which is lightweight euros which i think is they come out to the table most often at least in an apartment probably in a lot of people's apartments Mm -hmm. um these are kind of like the gateway kinds of games so um, you call Settlers of Catan a lightweight euro. Um, you'd call... We talked about Lords of Waterdeep. Lords of Waterdeep, exactly. So th- those are kind of the lightweight euros. And then there's this category of midweight euro, which is the idea where it's slightly more complex than that. Um, there are slightly more options. So you've got like Stefan Feld games like Trajan and Castles of Burgundy, which are a bit more thinky than your intro level board games but they're still not overwhelming to be clear each turn you still have like okay there are like four or five things i could do and i'm just choose all of them are good for me so i just need to choose which one is best for me which is the way these always work where um no move is actually bad there are just better moves yeah generally the way euro games work and and it is interesting how how player interaction works in euro games because uh, again you kind of have these multiple different buckets or tracks that you're thinking along and when one player starts to push harder on one track the other players kind of have to respond to to balance things out um so that that can be fun when you have someone who plays well and then the other people at the table are all knowledgeable enough about the game and about math in general so that they're kind of thinking about how to counteract that and it's it's particularly fun because um so a lot of these games are kind of like playing solitaire where everybody's playing solitaire and then you look up and you're like, all right, let's find another game. So it's really cool when you find euros that uh, encourage player interaction and, and really make you respond to it and think. So Concordia does that in these nice subtle ways. So enough talking about what, how oh, I would man. classify. <laughs> what is Concordia? So Concordia. Um, so the way the game works is you have like six six cards in your hand, um, and each turn you play one card from your hand and do its action, and that's the whole turn. You keep doing this until people either run out of cities or they're run out of cards to be bought. So 
It is literally like every turn you just go and you play a card and you do the thing. Um, so playing the cards and doing the things include things like um, you move your workers. Whenever your workers are adjacent to stuff, you can build there as long as you have the right resources. So you can do that. Uh, you can produce in a particular region, which is really cool because you might not be the only one in that region. So other people might have a vested interest in doing that. Mm -hmm. So if two people share the same region, both people will get supplies if they choose that area. Um, the other thing that there's a cool like double side of that one where if enough regions have been produced to, then it starts becoming worth it to flip them back to being able to be reproduced again. But, and you collect gold for doing that. Mm -hmm. So there's this cool, like I'm watching to see what you do when you play that prefix because that might mean I get to produce in uh, whatever, Egyptus again. Right, well, so to take a step back, um, one, of the, one of the really nice things about Concordia is that there, there are a lot of these systems that work really well together, but it also uh, has this cool feeling, sort of like a, a sieve or something like that, where you see this big map and you kind of get a sense of, of the, it's set in like a Greek, time basically greek region roughly speaking yeah it's it's settled around it's italy is the primary place right. so there's there's two sides you can play on the on the game with one is for less people and one's for more people if you're playing with less people you just play with like a blown up map of italy which is really cool because you see like subtleties of regions and mm -hmm. cities and stuff and then the other side is kind of like a broader mediterranean europe so it's got like uh, Italy, it's got uh, England, it's got the little tip of Africa that touches up there. So mm -hmm. Morocco, um, whatever. yeah, it's a big, it's a big map um, that you're, you're more or less going to go conquer with. Yeah, friends. and you're and you're trying to basically like produce goods and and uh, get, no attacking. Yeah, it's it's all like economic advantages over the other player. So mm -hmm. it's it's good if if people like like you. I know that um, you've you've played both board games and video games that. Uh, have to balance making an, an economic engine so that can support a military and then that's how you win the game is by having kind of military Boo. strength but but this kind of focuses entirely on how do you develop a, a, an economic engine in a period of time where you are physically producing goods and and moving them around and stuff like that yay <laughs> no stabby yay <Right>. money <laughs> yeah so those are a couple of the cards the other cards have similar kinds of things where you can like buy a card from the market or um help buy more colonists and when you play colonists uh then you can obviously move them and then have them buy settlements and stuff like that so mm -hmm. um the really cool card in your hand that i think makes the game come alive there's two one it says copy a card that an opponent has face up mm -hmm. so, so that's a cool one and a, a way to encourage and like have you pay attention to what your neighbors are doing player interaction exactly and then the other one is this card um that says okay now pick up all your cards again so it's this really cool like hard reset thing where you you go from having basically no options to having all of your options mm -hmm. and that I, th I think that design works really really well well yeah it's 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 sort of a, a push push your luck kind of micro system in the game because uh when when you are choosing what cards to play you're kind of especially with that card that lets you play somebody else's you're trying to, to have played as many cards uh efficiently as you can before you reset your hand because you get there's an incentive where it says for each card that's down basically you get an extra money so you want to play that card as late as possible but that also means you might be making suboptimal moves towards the end where you do a thing that's helpful for you but are you really doing it because you just want that like one extra gold right so so again kind of balancing to kind of fine-tune your economic engine to be the most efficient is kind of what what all those kind of smaller systems add up to in terms of the experience and then the other i think big like big reveal of the game is that so the way you actually get victory points isn't through doing any of those things. It's uh, each card at the bottom has a way of scoring it. So it'll say you get one victory point for each non-brick non, uh, city that you have. You get one victory point for each province that you've settled in. Uh, and for each of those cards you have in your deck, you get more victory points for doing it. 
So the deck building component of like, I want to take that card because it lets me do a thing I want also will give you victory points. So you do want to get these cards, but you want to balance. There's this really cool balance. My favorite part of the game is this balance between, okay, I need to get a bunch of cards so that I can get mul multipliers for the way these victory points score. But also, if I don't actually put anything on the map, then they won't be multiplying anything. Right. So you're you. It is a game that is like like all most midway euros. I feel like they're really about trying to do everything. Okay. Decently. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and people who focus too hard on one thing tend to not succeed in the end. Yeah. And I think Concordia just wraps that up really nicely, and it takes it takes like an hour and a half probably, especially. Turns can feel really thinky because especially when you do that hard reset, you have like nine op you have six options to choose from basically. Mm -hmm. Um and figuring out which one is most efficient at a given moment can be terrifying. Yeah. But again, it's I the other things I like about it are that like you can pretty much play with your gut and you'll be competitive for mm -hmm. sure. Number one. And then number two, uh, I love so the scoring doesn't happen until the very end of the game. So a lot of times in games like this you'll be playing and then you'll be like a third of the way through and then go, I'm pretty sure I've lost this game already. Yeah. This game, you don't really know, which is actually really nice. Um, because then everybody can have fun playing the whole length of the game. And then at the end, even if you're like 70 points behind, that might be like a little bit of a bummer, but at least for those whole 90 minutes that you were playing, you were having a good time and like trying your best, which I think games can... I don't know. Sometimes some people find that frustrating. I think it's a nice thing that like keeps everybody invested. Yeah, I think I think that the the bottom line for me is that it's the kind of thing where if if folks like to do number crunching to be the best they can be without being super aggressive and competitive, um, but just kind of like more of a laid back, thinky, um, almost like next level Sudoku kind of thing, you yeah. know. With uh, your friends. So, like, yeah. you'd be doing this, you'd have, like, cups of tea, you'd be, like, having, like, conversation and just kind of, like, stewing on this puzzle. Yeah. So, so that that seems like the, the, the best kind of person to play a midweight Euro like Concordia. Yeah. And I we had a bunch of nerdy friends over. So, I was like, what? Can I bring out Concordia? Dude. <laughs> I walked into the kitchen, Brian was like, I had the crew to play a midweight Euro. And then they all went... Yeah. <laughs> this is a jingle. Jingle. I don't know what it is. It's over. <laughs> yes, indeed. It's like the gorilla without the chest. It's like the beats without the rest. It's like the rest without the sleep. It's like the stalker without the creep. It's like the creep without the stealth it's like the rich without the wealth so other than other than board games you had some cool concerts that you went to this week yeah so i well concert right um i went and saw glenn hansard on friday mm -hmm. um if that name sounds familiar but you're a little foggy so i think the definitely the thing he's most known for is that he uh was in the movie once and, and his music was too yeah so him and Marquetta, who's the other lead, are are the movie where it's kind of about their relationship. Um, if you haven't seen it, I oh, highly so recommend good. it. It's a musical, but it's unlike any musical I've ever seen before, any musical I've listened to before, because it does a number of things very differently um, that I think it's worth talking about since I'm going to talk about Glenn's music a bit. But basically, um, I think the, the number one thing is that they're kind of like acoustic songwriter kinds of songs. So they don't, they're not as normally like piano, major keys, like big song numbers. They're not like that really. Um, and then the other piece is that the songs don't really narrate what's happening either. The songs are more about capturing the emotion of the moment and they storytell through talking about what emotions are happening in that moment, more or less. You still figure out from the story, the characters talking and stuff like that, but as far as the songs go, at least in the movie, it seems like they're more about um, bringing those characters' emotional state to bear so that you emotionally understand what's happening. Um, so even if you don't have as much sense of like the intricacies of like 
what is happening, you you definitely understand the emotional roadmap of what happened. Yeah, and I think that musical theater nuts would probably argue that that's what most musicals do. But I think that what what stands out to me as a reason that you've kind of mentioned before why ones might click more for you and other people who might be a little turned off by musicals is that it's motivated that they're just two songwriters and when they're singing oftentimes the context for it is that they're practicing a song or they're trying to write something or uh it's 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 all motivated by who they are versus uh you've talked about how you and and larry both kind of your your brother they they have these moments in big musicals where the characters are just in a scene and then someone will just spontaneously break into song and just feel strange because there's no actual reason why a character would be singing at that moment versus in ones that's just who they are yeah like yeah i mean it and it establishes it like right away where like glenn's character is a busker so he's like out in the streets like playing his guitar asking for money mm-hmm. uh like immediately and you're like okay i get who this character is and then you don't i don't think you fully understand that the necessarily that like that's the musical structure that's going to take place and then it happens and you're like oh this is cool. I like this a lot. And it's like pretty much just like acoustic guitar and piano. Right. Because it's pretty much just Glenn and Marquetta doing right. the whole thing. And, and that and that kind of music is pretty different than what most musicals use. And and you got to hear it live. Yeah. And there's, there's a lot more like sadness tinged to it. I think that's the other thing is and this might be contentious, but I feel like musicals often sound like happy mm-hmm. generally. Um when I think of Broadway, I think of like actors smiling and once is very much like when Glenn hits big notes, he doesn't like sing big. He sings like angry almost. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's her. Yeah, exactly. And so, so seeing that live is, was awesome. So like even, so like the one songs in particular, once when he played them, it was like, I immediately, that, that movie captured so much emotion a bit. Like I've talked about in before the storm life is strange. Um, where the song plays and then you just you're transported to that emotional state you were in so like i was pretty i was like on the verge of tears just from like how emotionally charged that song is and then hearing it with like a live person's intonation and like big and full and like in your ears was was astounding to me um so there's a lot of that going on and i want to talk about a few specific moments and then just kind of the overall structure of the show so um, some of the real, he has a lot, he's like a very bantery kind of person. Mm-hmm. Um, as he, you can tell from the film that he likes to talk. He's like an Irishman who likes to like drink a little and then talk is like his general deal. Um, and uh, so some of the song intros he'd do, he'd said, he like, so one of the songs from Once is the song they like go in and play at the studio um, when your mind's made up. Um, there's no point trying to change it when your mind's made up. Uh, it's an amazing song. And he like, introed it. He's like, yeah, so this is a half song. Um, it never really got fully written. We didn't really know where to end with it, but we were kind of given this direction of like, okay, this is a song you're going to go, you're going to tell the producer, uh, you're going to record it in the studio, and they're going to be really impressed by it. They're like, go. Like, go write this, come back with it in like a day or two. Um, so they came back, and this was like the emotional state of that time in the studio. And I, to me, I love this idea of the like half song, because it's he and he was talking about. It, he's like, I love half songs. I wish I would love to release an album of like half songs because there's <laughs> so much potential for them, because they can go anywhere. Um, whereas like when a song is finished, it's finished. But these half songs, they have potential to you know they can evolve into a bunch of different things. Um, and he said that song always kind of felt half finished. And again, like it is kind of, it is really repetitive. Um, and it definitely captures emotion really well, but I think beginning you see where it's going and then it just kind of, they break into like the chorus thing and they kind of say it over and over again, which works totally. And I, but I love the idea of this like imperfect thing that you can hear and does its job so well, but like they don't even, they don't see it as a finished thing. And that's kind of what's perfect about it. Because they like go into the studio and this is what they have, and it's this imperfect thing that's not finished, but it's amazing. Yeah. Um, to me, that's really amazing. Um, so I really, really liked that anecdote, and I mentioned to you yesterday because we were playing, we were demoing this game called Lion Song, uh, which is not a Ben game and might be a Brian game, but I couldn't really tell. It's kind of got some like pretentious vibes, but um, <laughs> there was this thing happening in the thing where 
it, I just felt like a thing that Glenn had said on stage where he was like, um, I, I had fallen in love, I had fallen in love with someone's work and confused that in my head for falling in love with them. Uh, which led to a really awkward time because we were friends at the time. We could have we could have been more than that, um, but it was clear like it was clear that I wasn't actually in love with them. I was just in love with their work, and now we're best friends now. And he was like, "But we, I mean, we would be best friends if we were dating." But <laughs> so he's clearly that kind of person. Um, but so that was an interesting one because I I think that's super that's a very tangible thing people can relate to. I forget what song he played with it, but just that feeling I think is very real of like admiring so much. You think you like them. It can be a thing that happens to people and their friends. So mm-hmm. Glenn is feeling that. Um, but yeah, he's just like a, he's an Irishman who like actually has stories about like, well, my friend said, Hey, do you want to go on a boat? And Glenn was like, sure. And then he went out sailing for like six weeks and they didn't bring any money and they just, stayed in people's like taverns basically and like sang songs with them and then were hung over every morning and like that's just like a part of his life he's lived mm-hmm. um so he's got a lot of that stuff and i think a lot of that culminated into this like three hour set which three hours is a long set that's amazing um and he uh, yeah it was it was a spanned a whole bunch of stuff so he was in a band i believe called the frames back in the day um that he was he was like the main member of but they were like a big full band and then he has like three solo albums he has obviously the once album um and he also just played like a bunch of irish folk songs mm-hmm. and has a lot of history with new york in particular which was really cool because he would just bring out friends from like you could tell they just like sang late drinking before um they'd come out and sing like tributes to irishmen or like songs that they just liked or um you know they he would bring out like a, a violinist and a trombonist and just be like where are you where are you going where are you going no stay for the next song um and that was i think that was really cool um so yeah if you have the chance to see Glenn, it's it's a pretty special thing yes indeed it's like the beach without the sand it's like the singer without the band. It's like the band without the rubber. It's like the whale without the blubber. It's like the blubber without the fat. It's like the feather without the hat. <laughs> so we, we squeezed in a lot of video games this week. Yeah. We, we had a lot of moments where you were busy and I was around or I was busy and you were around. So those are good moments to play games. It's uh, true. So, so one that you tried uh, was called Child of Light. So what uh, what was that like for you? So uh, first, before I go into it a little bit, I'll talk about kind of how it got on my radar. Because it's been on your radar for a while, but then I recently kind of picked up on it. And was like, oh, have you heard of this game? And you're like, why, Brian? Yes, I, I've known about this game for a while. And, and it's I... really not for me. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the way it came across my radar is I was on Eurogamer's uh, YouTube channel, and Johnny Chiardini, who's a really awesome uh, video games journalist, he was doing a series called Low Batteries, which is about mental health and gaming, both in terms of, like, representation and also, like, games people go for, like, safety and turning off and, and those kinds of things. Um, and on his he has an episode about loss Mm -hmm. and even if it's not always about mental health it's a thing that applies to everybody and is a thing that like you should be aware of how it affects your mental state even if you don't have a mental disorder or whatever Mm -hmm. um so we talked about child of light as a a cool game for elevating that um so more or less you play as like a princess who is captured in this who's like fell asleep and is captured in this dream world um and First things first, the thing that I think is super awesome about the game is that pretty much all the dialogue rhymes with each other. Mm-hmm. So it's got like that fairy tale vibe where um, either it's like uh, A, B, C, B, or it's so, so like N rhymes like that, or like it's just A, A or something like that. But um, all of it rhymes and then they play with it. So they have like a character who's the jester and you're like, oh yeah, they're setting up the rhyme and then the jester ends in something that's not it. And then your little sprite friend goes, 
don't you mean this? Um, which I thought was really funny. Um, so that I think that that works really well tonally. It's got a really interesting thing going on. The art's pretty cool. Um, it's this. It's like hand drawn looking. Um, you're like you're this girl, and you. It's just it looks really nice. Um, I know we say that about a lot of games, but we choose we tend to choose pretty games to look. And talk about. A, and there's a lot of different types of pretty too. That's true. Um, so so Child of Light has again that kind of two D storybook feel to yeah, it. Yeah, definitely storybook kind of feel to it. Um, and you more you kind of some of the thing is about you wandering around doing some like light platforming kinds of stuff, and then um, it's kind of almost like a JRPG almost, um, which if you're unfamiliar, it basically means like. You start at a low level and you have members in your party. So you have like more than one person who's with you. And then you use them to like have little mini fights with enemies. And then as you kill them, you level up. So like Pokemon is an example of a JRPG where you're constantly leveling up yeah. by killing enemies in these little skirmishes. So that's the way this game works where you'll see like enemies wandering around. And then if you run into them, you have a mini skirmish and you can get XP from that or you can try to avoid them and just run past them so mm-hmm. general st- structure of all jrpgs and i think the combat parts of the game are fine they're a bit frustrating um i definitely like the i i'm a sucker for like the leveling up system and and like point putting points and things and stuff like that um i think because video games use that to just to control your brain right skinner box we've talked about before susceptible to that very <laughs> much so and i don't know if it makes it okay if you are aware of the fact that it's happening <laughs> but <laughs> did, did the parrot that was smart enough to know that the food was never coming and peck the button anyway is that parrot smarter than the others or just the same well but in video games the food does come you do level up <laughs> so it's not a perfect anyway um but so the combat was yeah, probably the, the weakest part for you. Yeah, and it's it's an unfortunately large percent of the game also. Mm-hmm. But it's um, I don't like games that are so demanding of the player. Well, I probably could play it on a lower difficulty to to make it not as demanding on me. Because mm-hmm. the the bit that's hard is you have your character and you have these like there's a it's, it, it's an interesting it's definitely an interesting combat. Um, mechanic and if you like um, kind of puzzles this might be an interesting one for you where basically um, all characters have like a little point on a shared bar of time and as time progresses everybody moves along at the same speed more or less and then once you enter this like action zone you start executing an action so you choose what that action is it can either execute quickly uh, like medium slow or like super slow as you're executing that if someone else executes before you, they actually... It's They're all about you. getting to the end of the bar. So once you're at the end of the bar, they they activate whatever they have queued up. So that whether that's you or the enemy, whatever you have queued up, if you hit the end of the bar, you execute it. If you execute when the other person's in an execution bar and you attack them, then they get interrupted and they don't actually get to perform their thing. They get sent back further to the left on the bar. So it's this thing where like in a perfect world, you were always timing your stuff so that you were executing at the end of your bar when they're in their execution window, so they never get turns. Mm-hmm. In a perfect world, that can happen. You also have this little like firefly-type thing that you can hold on enemies to make them slow down in their bar movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and knowing when to do that is a whole mental puzzle that I haven't didn't quite fully figure out, but it is very, like, because it's in real time, it is... Oh God! What am I doing? What am I figuring? Out? And and that those kinds of things are make me a bit uncomfortable in the games because I would rather my favorite types of games I have like all the time in the world. Like I love games that have space bars where you can just pause them. Mm-hmm. Um, and this game doesn't have that, so it might be for some people if you like like pressure. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's an interesting thing because I had heard of, about the way that Child of Light dealt with mental health and and grief and stuff. Um, for a while and I I read a lot about it and watched trailers and whatever and it just didn't feel like something that I wanted to play and and that's I think something that some games struggle with we talked about Hellblade and how that that is definitely a turn off for a lot of people 
Like Brian. Like Brian. And and then games in general, how, you know, I was talking to my friend Casey recently about, because uh, Casey's just started to get into games a bit. Uh, and Casey's always said that he's heard so many amazing things about different games, mostly from me. And, <laughs> and he's, uh, he said that, like, one, one thing that he makes him feel sad is that a lot of times he just wants the experience of the thing, but he doesn't want to do it, you yeah. know? Um, which is why let's plays are such a big thing on the internet totally um so so yeah it is it is uh kind of complicated how some games just even even if all of the pieces are in the right place it just is is a bad fit you know um so but again that's that's because there are so many different types of games now where Mm -hmm. a game will come out it'll be an awesome game for a specific person and that's awesome. Mm-hmm. And Agreed. that should be celebrated. And the fact that we're having such a segmented market is actually a really cool thing. Mm-hmm. So um, it wasn't quite for me. I liked the concept and the vibe and stuff. Um, but the combat, I think, is too much of a barrier for me. But if that doesn't sound that unappealing to you, then you should definitely check it out. Mm-hmm. Speaking of games that, that are accessible to more people... Um, we, we mentioned uh, a couple episodes back about Snake Pass and how Snake Pass totally is rethinking how you interact with a game in, in the control scheme. And there's no game that disrupted the, the market of like where things were going in the past decade or so more than Guitar Hero. So, so <laughs> for those of you who have been trapped under a rock the last 20 years, Guitar Hero is a game in which you hold a tiny plastic guitar and you have uh like most many many famous songs uh that have been coded so that uh there there are moments where you have to press uh down a button on a fretboard uh and then strum at the right time so it's both about placement on on kind of a musical progression and 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 then the timing at the same time um and it's a game that that two 25 year old men adults whatever we are to be clear adults yeah adults that we we probably shouldn't be playing and yet we spent a bunch of time so much time yesterday playing <laughs> guitar hero now one thing i'm curious about is uh, how do you remember what your first relationship with guitar hero was I remember you got into it. I played it at a friend's house mm-hmm. and everyone was loving it. And I was like, I should have this because then people can come over and then love me. <laughs> um, so did you get it? Yeah. And I played it a decent amount. But um, yeah, I was more for me. It was like I was annoyed by the challenge of some of the things. Mm-hmm. And um, there's this famous thing in Guitar Hero where. Like the early songs are, are like a bunch of songs that you might like and are really good. And then when you get towards the end, it's like metal songs and, and like shredders. songs that, yeah, exactly. Songs you think of when you think of like testosterone induced, yeah. uh, like guitar comas. Right. Um, <laughs> Insane. And that never stories. appealed to me. I, I, I would only want to get like the high stars or whatever. And I, I think medium was the best i ever did when i was in my prime i would be able to like five star hard but except towards the end mm-hmm. was generally my uh, spectrum of good but i wanted that stuff for the for the things you unlocked not i didn't give a crap about the songs right because those songs are oh god they're yeah they're not they're not brian songs we had to play a ted nugent song yesterday <laughs> it was it was so bad it was pretty much the worst experience in my last two years <laughs> except for all of the horrible life world things that have been going on right other than that the thing that <laughs> only relates to brian ted nugent has been the worst um well so my my relationship with guitar hero is kind of similar i played at a friend's house um and they they were pretty good and and i was not good i was just starting yeah. oh the first time you play it's it's a tragedy i was, I was it looks so on, simple and it's so hard uh, yeah i was struggling on easy it was it was not not great and then, and then I, I'm the kind of person just from my personality who, who wants the challenge. Uh, and, and then I would go over to their house and I didn't have any consoles growing up, so I couldn't play guitar hero, uh, at my place and no friends came over. So there you go. Um, but I, I wanted the challenge. I would go to my friend's house. We'd play together. I would continually push myself to, uh, like 
I think I can play this on medium now, you know? And, and then I had this moment where, uh, we were playing cooperatively and there was just one section, I think it was on medium that was just so hard for me that I just kept failing the entire group. And my friend was so nice and supportive. I was like, it's okay. Like we can work through this. Like, <laughs> like you, I, you got this, you got this. I believe in you. You know, he's shredding on expert. And, and then I, I, uh, they released Guitar Hero 3 for PC, which I did have. And then I got my hands on a guitar and Becca and I would play together, which was great. Um, but I I went from, you know, struggling on medium to now I can, there there are definitely songs that I can five star an expert. And uh, and it's and it's an interesting experience to, to like have that progression um, and have sunk that much time into a thing. And then now, come back to it and it's a certain amount riding on bicycle stuff you know or like even if i haven't played guitar hero in like a year or two my fingers just remember the frets and and the chords and you stuff. went i mean you went straight back into extreme and we're doing like pretty well pretty well definitely Except not for the like knights of sidonia guitar solo <laughs> yeah that was pretty rough there's so many notes they're so fast um but but one so one one thing that i really like would like to to dig into a bit with Guitar Hero is that people get down on it a lot for this kind of uh, context of pretending that you're a rock star and pretending that you know how to play guitar, right? You know? And that like people who are like, "Oh man, I'm so good at Guitar Hero!" Like they, if one person who actually plays guitar is next to them, they're like, "Dude, that's not guitar." And to be clear, that have that like that conversation happened a lot in like middle school and high school. Yeah, for sure. And and I think that I I've never really gotten uh, frustrated by by people who call it out because for me it's it's so different. Like yeah. I've never I've never played Guitar Hero and felt like a rock star. That's it's, never that's never been my experience. Exactly. Um, it's really for me it's interesting because I don't listen to music really. Right. Um, I find it to be kind of boring and it's not interactive enough for ben exactly and guitar hero gave me a way to enjoy music just because i had some element of of interactivity and challenge that i could be digging into while the music was playing uh so there's there's jokes that the only music that i really know about is stuff that becca my sister has recommended to me or through guitar hero and i have these like weird intense amounts of knowledge around like 80s 90s rock songs that just or 70s whatever that that i just played in guitar hero a ton and also good at them kendrick lamar and hamilton well both from from my family um but but so the the thing that that really makes me enjoy guitar hero is that you know it's not it's not about pretending to be a rock star it's about having a mechanical thing to be doing while good music is playing um and and that's and that's awesome for me yeah, and and I, I do think it, there's something to be said where, you know, the majority of the population isn't good enough at an instrument to like play along to a song with that instrument. Right. So the fact that guitar here can come along and it's like obviously you're not good enough to be a rock star when you're playing it, but it does give you that that like feeling that is really nice and mentally satisfying of like I'm participating in the music that's happening right mm -hmm. now. Um, I think that's a really beautiful thing. And the idea that you have people who it is like you, you're not playing guitar, but when you pick and your thing is on the right note, the sounds come out from the game correctly. Right. So I don't care. That's that synthetic sensation of I'm doing a thing and it's making music and I'm a part of it. Giving people that brain lie is yeah, awesome totally because i think it does it, it makes me like music making accessible you don't have to be good at it mm -hmm. to, to do it and i think that's amazing and the accessibility factor is also huge in terms of just games in general because i'm sure there's there are many many people who like us had moments hanging out at a friend's house where someone would just pull out guitar hero and there's probably like a couple of of like like not so the kind of frustrating guys usually who would just be amazing at it yeah. and just shred on on uh, uh, Freebird or whatever. Or forever. like would be singing to the song, sound like garbage and getting five stars. Right. What is happening? <laughs> but but the, I like, can only sing Jack White songs. <laughs> but the 
But I also have uh, cousins and stuff who basically wouldn't play any games except for Guitar Hero. And it gave them the ability to to enjoy video games and, and think about video games in a different way. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that's really awesome. And games are getting better and better at figuring out how to let people who wouldn't normally play a game enjoy games without thinking of themselves as a gamer. Because I think most most people who uh, mostly played Guitar Hero and not other games, they wouldn't consider themselves gamers, but they were still playing games, you know? Right. Well, I think part of that was, was the genius of the design of, like, we're going to give you, a, like, a controller that looks like a guitar as opposed to, like, a normal controller. Right. It, it kind of tricks your brain into being, like, this is unlike anything that exists as, like, a video game. It feels different. Yeah. So so that's that's great in terms of giving people something to use as a gateway. Yeah, and it's it's definitely 100% true. We we were talking about this yesterday. If if there was a modern guitar hero that pretty much like if I didn't have to pay constantly and I could just have like all the music any music that I wanted and just play it, I would I would be playing guitar hero a lot yeah. even right now. Just cuz it's it's a really inherent the value proposition to me is very clear and awesome. Like if I can, if I could just boot it up and then play, um, you know, like an LCD sound, if I could play like us versus them mm-hmm. just, and just like hang out and like play, like just basically listen and appreciate the music and have a thing to be doing while doing it. Um, that, I mean, that's a hugely appealing to me. Yeah. And, and we'll talk about this more another day, but you've, you've found some games that, that aren't, quite as aligned with the music as guitar hero but stuff like burnout paradise or whatever where you have a thing to be doing yeah that's that's a big topic i think i want to unpack at a later date but i i really like these games that let you like listen to a podcast or listen to music and they don't demand that much from you so that you can just kind of play them while you're doing that thing and then you and like mind shut off i'm appreciating the music i'm doing something with my hands and you're in this like nirvana zen mode of escapism yeah and that's and that when we were playing guitar hero that's sort of how you shaped your playing because at first you were playing on hard and you were like i I didn't want this from guitar hero like i didn't want i don't need challenge from it right as long as i'm doing a thing i'm happy right so you were you were really happy getting 99 to 100 percent on medium whereas i was happy getting 91 to 96 percent on hard or expert or whatever you know yeah Expert. So. It wasn't hard. It was expert. It was expert. You're good. We know it. Then. <laughs> Speaking um, of things you're good at, truck nuts. <laughs> um, so, I feel like we probably brought this up before, but we we wanted to do more of a deep dive into it. It's this game called Lovers in a Dangerous Space Time. Yes. Um. And I know we've talked about it maybe a bit before, but we we played it again with our uh with our friend Carrie last night, and it was so insanely phenomenal <laughs> that we couldn't help but plug it again as one of the best like cooperative experiences we've ever had right so so lovers in a dangerous space time first of all the the tone is amazing it's just pastel colors and and the whole the whole game is basically like this insanely cutesy story about your the space and everything's powered by love and then there's anti-love that seeps <laughs> in and then you have to go on missions to like repair the love reactor and like get everything to normal and all the characters are these cute animals that are super cartoonish and stuff bunnies and frogs bunnies and frogs and cats and whatever um but uh but so the the mechanics of the game are are also like uh a huge part of why the experience is exciting and engaging so yeah so you and your friends are controlling a spaceship Mm -hmm. um and kind of moving it through this level and trying to rescue um bunnies frogs whatever the level happens to be mm-hmm. um and there are like enemy ships that kind of float around and shoot stuff at you and they all there's a bunch of different types of enemies that are all different and interesting and blah 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 um but yeah the the really awesome thing is that you you and your friends are controlling the spaceship together and there are a bunch of different stations so not everybody's at a station at one station the whole time um which makes it work because it's there's always in a perfect world you'd have seven people, eight people running your spaceship, but you only have three, four of you. So the, there's a, a challenge to it. Right. So so uh, it's it's also that a lot of games where you're controlling a spaceship, 
uh, either it's kind of one person taking control of like a ton of different systems or it's a lot of people all working together on one huge thing. But Lovers in Danger Space Time is really good because it's streamlined and simple and it still requires people to do some moving around the ship. So uh, essentially you have a, this circle ship. Uh, the starting one has one station for what we call the captain where you're steering <laughs> the ship and then another one for uh, the person who's operating the shields that can block incoming attacks. And then there's a, a kind of turret on all four sides of the ship. Like north, due south, north, east, due east, yeah. so on. And then, uh, and then there's a couple other, there's one, a, a map station and one that's like, like a, a super big gun, gun that yeah. has a charge down. But, uh, but yeah, so basically what, ha- what happens is you're, you're thinking about a lot of different things at the same time. And it's, it definitely falls into the easy to learn, hard to master thing where every position is pretty simple. You know, when you're the captain, you're not doing tons of like course, whatever. It's just, you press a direction and then you hit a button and then it goes in the opposite direction. There's, there's a joystick and then there's one button to hit. And those are the whole of controls in Lovers in a Dangerous Space Time. Yeah. So it's very accessible. Right. And then, and then, uh, yeah, the, the shields you just point the shield in a direction the guns you yeah so if i'm at the shield if i'm at shields and i point up then my shields move to up right that is the game (laughs) right um but then then it kind of layers on these these complexities about asteroids and enemy ships and and there are certain areas where you need to to fight your way out and and it requires everyone to be working together uh it's it's the kind of cooperative game where you absolutely cannot do it without the people helping you and if one person is is unable to to kind of pull their weight then everyone suffers for it um but that said any individual job is fairly simple so it doesn't it's not super demanding of of any one person Um, but you feel it when everyone is doing their simple thing really well together and real quickly before we dive into that, because I would definitely want to expand on that, two other things that I think we mentioned a lot yesterday that I think are worth pointing out is how replayable the game is mm-hmm. because of there are two, I think two big things that increase the variety of what's going on. One is um, as you're going through space, you see these like these little packages. And if you shoot them, then in your ship, you get packages and they include upgrades which you can apply to any station. So they more or less work how like you would think. So like if you put a metal one in the steering, then when you drive along, you shoot out little caltrips that if an enemy, it'll, they'll negate enemy stuff basically. Um, and if you give power to the shield, then the shield becomes bigger. Um, and each station, the way you put these in changes the gun completely. Right. Or whatever the station is completely. So the, the shield, for instance, you gotta have it be a little bigger. You can ha- have it, uh, be a big metal kind of slower moving thing that you can ram into people. Uh, the yeah the the engine if you put a power thing in it you get a little boost versus yeah shooting out those metal uh, shards behind you that can impact enemies. So it it definitely changes the the potential of each station. And the the ultimate form of that is you get to a point early in the game where you can have two of them in, in your station and then how those two things interact changes it fundamentally. So you, it's just really cool that you have the option to like choose and like, Oh, I really like this weapon or like, Oh, I really like what this does for my shield and then choose it and then do that and like make it your playthrough, which is really cool. Yeah. And then there's also procedurally generated maps. So even if you like fail at a level and you go in again, the map is completely different. So there's a bunch of variety. And that and that both makes it so that uh, it's it's not as frustrating to try to replay the same thing over and over again. Uh, but also, if you've played something before and you dive in, it's an entirely different set of challenges and how and figuring out how to navigate through everything and rescue all the bunnies or frogs or whatever. Friends. Friends. They're called friends in they the terminology of the game. That's true. So so. Yeah, so then to, to dig in a bit more into the way that the game is cooperative, uh, it's it's sort of like we've, we've, I don't think we've talked too much about this game called Overcooked, but it also is a video game that's 
so accessible, very simple to learn, hard to master kind of thing where, again, you need, you need everyone to be working as a team in order to succeed. And where I get kind of overwhelmed by games that are completely competitive, pitting people against one another, I, I love games like Lovers in a Dangerous Space Time where when you succeed, everyone succeeds and you all feel like you contributed in some way. And, you know, the, the moments where, again, the, the captain picks a heading and decides to go for it and the shields are blocking enemies that are firing at you from behind and the gunner blasts you all through an asteroid belt. Like those, those moments are unlike anything else for me. And they, they really let people have a lot of personality too, where um, before when we were playing with your friend Ryan, well, my friend, our friend Ryan, um, <laughs> we were driving along and he was, he was being the captain and uh, we'd be like, captain, which way are we going? And then he'd be like, we're going north, east. And that, then it became this, this like epic unparalleled joke in the game where it was like, which direction are you going? This way. Actually, this way! Because <laughs> um, it's really important for everybody to know where you're going because then you have to prepare for it. Right. So the like drunken captain became our, <laughs> one of our favorite things to role play, which was really fun. And then as we were playing with Carrie last night, I remember a moment where um, we were in a, like, a really tricky situation. And then they happened to... They they were so good with this like sniper gun mm-hmm. um, that was like... You know, you give Carrie a double sniper gun and it's over. It's over. It's just in that moment, it's just over. And like having those very specific thoughts and moments are incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this might be a little indulgent, but I wanted to talk a bit about boss design in, in souls like games. Indulge. <laughs> yes. Indulge. So, uh, so I've, I've played a lot of souls like games at this point. They're, they're, souls like so basically there was uh, a game called Demon Souls which came out and uh, it it you can dig into the the complexity of it but basically it it changed the way that a certain sector of video games were made because it gave people a new kind of challenge to find that they didn't didn't find other places. And at first it was only in Japan, and then it kind of like sort of got released in the U.S., blah, blah, blah. Things happened. Eventually, Dark Souls came out. Dark Souls is the big one that kind of changed everything. Um, and since then, Dark Souls has been part of a trilogy. Dark Souls, Dark Souls 2, Dark Souls 3. And then the company that makes those games is from software. They made Bloodborne. Then there's other games that use those same elements. What would you consider Dark Souls elements? So Dark Souls Elements involves a lot of uh, kind of twisting level design. So you have to do a lot of kind of uh, navigating a confusing maze. If you and don't have a mental map. They're very challenging yeah, and, and probably too challenging. Um, they're, they're also pretty intensely focused on moment-to-moment combat. A lot of games are more kind of like bigger kind of World of Warcraft style you think about a lot of different uh abilities and any any challenge is really coming from number crunching stuff that you do beforehand and some execution of the moment but dark souls even a tiny enemy uh if you if you don't uh kind of treat them as an equal opponent and and uh kind of find find moments where you can get in attacks without taking damage then uh you you can be defeated by anybody so it's not a power fantasy uh, at its core. You know, it's a it's a much more thinky experience than that, um, and and they're really inaccessible for a lot of people. Um, one thing that when when you did your foray into playing Dark Souls when we were playing at the same time co- cooperatively, um, you said that people have to be able to have really good observation and also have to be able to execute perfectly all the time in order to succeed and that's just something that you find as an experience to be completely unpleasant um and and uh it's interesting to talk about child of light and how um different that combat system is and how that's also somewhat inaccessible um but but for me the 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 thing that i really like about these kinds of games in terms of their combat is it, it really does have a lot 
to do with timing. That's that's a huge part of it. And uh, the the kind of huge revelation when people first started sinking a ton of time into Dark Souls is that they realized that even if your character was in a spot where an enemy's attack would hit you, that if you timed your dodge right, you still wouldn't get hit. And and that's that's been called iframes or invincibility frames now. So there are, there are a lot of games that use iframes and it changes the experience of the combat because it's not as much about kind of just like running away all the time, but you can actually learn all of the different possible moves that an enemy can do and then react to them in a split second in order to not take damage. Um, so so the in, in that vein, uh, some of my favorite bosses in any kind of Dark Souls or Dark Souls inspired game have all been or any game really. any game yeah totally Some these are the favorite. highest bosses in your book more or less yeah they're like well executed dark souls kinds of boxes right and and in terms of what engages me about a game there's games that have amazing stories like life is strange or the witcher or whatever um but but in terms of games that have a challenge element these are these are the best of the best of the best so that's stuff like artorius in in dark souls or uh lady maria in bloodborne or we, we just played a boss in Neo today that was definitely like this, uh, this like ice queen of sorts. And, and the, you know, we, we tried that boss a lot and we failed a lot, you know, and even as somebody who has played a ton of these games and sunk like embarrassingly hundreds of hours into these things <laughs> that I, we, we still played this boss probably, I don't know, 40 times maybe uh and for some people that just like immediately off the table like i have to do the same thing 40 times no way um but but the the experience of walking into like opening going through a fog gate or walking into a a, a chamber that you know is going to have a boss and you see a little cutscene play and then you immediately get one shot and it's over you know <laughs> like it's over uh versus you know by the by the 10th try you know you start to learn when when like how to dodge each move or or like block or avoid or whatever and when when you have enough time to do a little damage to get an attack in um it becomes a puzzle and these ones that i mentioned the the artorias kind of bosses it it moves so fast and the windows are so small that it becomes this dance of sorts, you know, where, uh, again, usually you play fairly locked on to them, or at least you need to be able to see them at all times because you need to know what move they're doing so you can know how to dodge it, whatever else. So you're just circling each other and they'll make a play and you'll react to it. And then you'll make a play and they'll react to it. And again, the, like the, for me, I think that the top of the top of the top for me is the, the bloodborne DLC boss, lady Maria and, and, Man, I played that boss so many times, and every time I, I was just excited to go in because uh, she she kind of has three stages to the fight, and uh, and each time she kind of like evolves to her next stage, her moves become more like ballet like. There's lots of twirling and spinning and fast attacks, and you have to just like like sidestep and and jump in and jump out and oh man it just becomes this like swirling dance um and and then the experience of finishing and and like succeeding like finishing off the boss really does feel like this this kind of like i don't know it's this strange moment of like mutual respect you know um where i've never i've never been like like in your face at the end of a boss like that. I've never like felt this dominance. It's, it's like always wow. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And 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 it's nice that a lot of these games don't have any way to communicate other than gestures. So so yeah, it is it is great to have those moments where you you have uh, a duel and you know I I respect the Ice Queen we fought so much. And I don't feel like I'm better than her, even though I, d I ended up defeating her after a lot of great coaching from you uh, and a decent amount of obsessive memorization of movesets from me. Um, so, so, 
yeah, it is it is this amazing moment of of like I found my equal. We like danced around one another, and in the end, I was able to to figure out enough to to get the edge, and and yeah, it's just this really meditative moment of of feeling accomplished and humbled at the same time, you know. And it, well, I can't get that anywhere else. And I'll I'll speak a bit to it because. Um, if it sounds boring to do this thing and do it 40 times, I'm the person who sits there and watches it. <laughs> so you can do a whole psychoanalysis on who I am and why I'm a person. <laughs> but I actually really enjoyed it. And I think to me, the reason that was so fun um, was I I felt this intense sense of progression mm-hmm. where I could in real time watch Ben learning each run where okay, you know, this move I have to do this to, this move I have to do this to, and then you'd see adapt adaptation in real time of, okay, I know that this attack, I now do this, then he executes it the next time, and then he gets, like, a little happy and then goes in and gets hubrisy and then dies. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, good, you, you, you beat that thing, and then you got really hubrisy, and Ben was like, yep, that is absolutely <laughs> what I did. I was really happy I dodged that move, and then I died. <laughs> um, but it just felt like we were, like, three-fourths of the way through our tries, it just felt like we were so much further than when you literally you walked into the room and then you died within two seconds. Right, totally. And feeling that progression, I'm sure as a player is really rewarding, but also when you're just as a coach and you're just like watching someone learn a thing, it's pretty cool, actually. Yeah. So, yeah, episode seven. It's in the books like The Fall of Rome. Some, some books touch on the fall of Rome. Most do. The rise and fall of Rome. Of the Roman Empire. Bye!